Welcome back, everybody, to the Roses and Rhetoric Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jimmy Hackett, and with me, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. All right, off notifications. So you could turn off your uh, garbage disposal. That'd be great. <laughs> oh, I'm just uh, cracking my Topo Chico here. Do not disturb. Okay, this is going to be a good episode. I promise you have no idea what I'm about to share with you. <laughs> Wait, is that the intro? No, no, no. Um, let me know when you're ready. Let me know when, you're, when your Topo Chico is cracked. <clears throat> Wait, okay. What's the, what's the format going to be? I'm going to introduce us. I'm going to introduce the new format for today's episode. And then I'm going to pass it over to you to share your story. Then you're going to pass it over to me to share mine. And then we're going to discuss both at the same time. Okay. Um, are, when you say that you're going to intro the format, like how, how are you going to describe it? Just, I'm going to say uh, we both have prepared uh, written statements that neither one of us have been exposed to. So we're sharing it on air for the first time with the audience and with each other. Okay. Oh boy, dude, bro, this has been a scramble to get this put together. I just yeah, gotta say I, that. <laughs> mine, mine, mine wasn't a scramble as much. Uh, divine revelation. You'll, uh, I think, I think you'll get a kick out of it. Okay. Okay. All right. Count me in. Count me in. Wait, wait, <clears throat> wait, 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 wait. Hold on. <laughs> wow, I just had a lot of gas there. You just fucking shut it down. <laughs> I'm having a. Having some get te- your computer set up. Get get your get your thing pulled up. I got my I got my story pulled up as well, and then I got. Uh, well, actually, I have a Wikipedia page open, but that's besides the point. What? I have uh, I have my short story opened up. Short it's story. Story. It's not a short story. I just fucking spoiler alert. Yeah, no, it's not just a story. All right. Let's see. I got my props. Um, come on. Uh, okay. I think that I am. Actually, no. I need to put a shirt, okay. shirt on. Hold on. Get a little, get a little juice in there. Get a little juice going. Come on. Let me put a shirt on. What are you wearing right now? I got a. I, I always wear. I have a nice fitting shirt on right now, and I'm wearing my uh, short sleeve. They're, uh, yeah, short sleeve. And then I got on some uh, like workout pants from Reebok. They're probably the ones you've seen. The black ones are kind of like a little bit of fitted, a little 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 taper. Nice. The pants, the joggers. Yeah, the joggers. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Okay. All right, ready? Hold on. I need to put my... Hold on, hold on. A lot of false starts in today's episode. A lot of false starts. I'm also using wires today as opposed to the AirPods, so... Okay, that'd probably be better. I am in... Uh, my phone's plugged in, so we should have no glitches on that. Just clear the sinuses. Prepare my my nice nasally drone. You know, Joe Rogan and uh, Adam Kula both have a nice nasally drone, so I mean, there's nothing there to it. 
You know, and Scott Adams, he's got he's got some oh, mad yeah, nasal yeah, yeah, yeah. issues. That's probably too much. <laughs> okay, that one's a little guess. Okay, here we go. Uh, here yeah. we go. Greetings, everybody, and thank you for joining us on today's episode of Roses and Rhetoric. Today's format will be a little bit different because every episode so far has been a little bit different. On today's episode, Joe and myself have prepared written statements that neither I nor he have seen. Uh, so we're sharing them for the first time with the audience today and the first time with each other. We're going to both read our opening uh, statements and then discuss them afterwards. So without further ado, as always, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford, take it away. Modern spiritual leaders, such as Eckhart Tolle, have taught me the importance of living in the present moment. That is, catching yourself whenever you begin to feel anxious about the future or regretful of things that have happened in the past. This has been a major realization for me and posture of mind that I've made an effort to incorporate into my own life. I've reaped major benefits in terms of my base level happiness and the amount of focus that I can dedicate towards my goals. But it felt as though there were pieces to the puzzle that were missing. Okay, Eckhart, so you're telling me that all I have to do is live life in the moment at all times and my problems will go away. Intellectually, I understood that if the mind has no psychological time, the me or the ego cannot exist and there will be no conflict. This makes sense. But how feasible is it really to live life completely in the moment? Humans have goals and passions, things that must be planned for. A binary model of the ego, that is that it neither exists or does not exist, isn't a practical one. The ego cannot be dealt with solely by flipping a switch to turn it off. Sometimes it needs to be managed. I cannot live life without using the word I. Recently, I've been introduced to a new facet of mental posturing. And although I always knew it to be true intellectually, I've never really implemented it into the heart and my gut. The concept is not caring what other people think. A concept so obviously true However, I've never completely internalized the meaning. Anthony DeMello, an incredible author who's a native of India and a Jesuit priest, said the following in his book, The Way to Love, Meditations for Life. Recall the kind of feeling you have when someone praises you, when you are approved, accepted, and applauded, and contrast that with the kind of feeling that arises within you when you look at the sunset or the sunrise or nature in general, or when you read a book or watch a movie that you thoroughly enjoy. Get the taste of this feeling and contrast it with the first. Understand that the first type of feeling comes from self-glorification, self-promotion. It is a world feeling. The second comes from self-fulfillment, a soul feeling. World feelings versus soul feelings. Seeing this contrast spelled out so clearly was a jaw-dropping moment for me. Why did this realization not come earlier in my 28 years of existence? DeMello continues. Here's another contrast. Recall the kind of feeling you have when you succeed, when you have made it, when you get to the top, when you win a game or a bet or an argument, and contrast it with the kind of feeling you get when you really enjoy the job you're doing. You are absorbed in an action that you are currently engaged in. 
And once again, notice the qualitative difference between the worldly feeling and the soul feeling. Here, DeMello describes two forms of happiness, world feelings and soul feelings. Which type should we revel in and welcome into our lives, and which type should we be cautious of? DeMello answers. Attempt to understand the true nature of world feelings, namely the feelings of self-promotion and self-glorification. They are not natural. They were invented by your society and your culture to make you productive and to make you controllable. These feelings do not produce the nourishment and happiness that is produced when one contemplates nature or enjoys the company of one's friend or one's work. They were meant to produce, produce thrills, excitement, and emptiness. These excitements that only produce emptiness, the desire for attention, approval, fame, popularity, success, or power, ends DeMello. In other words, anytime you feel yourself caught in emotions, positive or negative, take a critical look at the root of the feeling. Ask yourself in a hypothetical world where you were the only inhabitant, could this feeling exist? And if the answer is no, then the emotion may be an unnecessary and poisonous illusion. This is in agreement with one of Scott Adams' biggest principles and one of the most common forms of loser think. Assuming that you know what other people are thinking that you can read minds with any sort of accuracy whatsoever. This is a huge fallacy in human existence. By caring what other people think and letting your emotional condition depend on those assumptions of what they're thinking, we are by definition basing our emotional state on assumptions that will more often than not be wrong. This is a collective insanity. With that being said, a critical question arises. Is there ever a utility in caring what other people think? There's nothing wrong with having goals and principles or rules that you and only you have decided to live by. Maybe there is utility in considering someone else's opinion of you. Consider situations where it aids in achieving your own predetermined, well-thought-out goals. An example of this could be optimizing one's physical appearance. The better someone looks, the more doors society opens for them. A cold truth but a truth nonetheless. A better physical appearance changes how people respond to you and how much influence you have over the world. Maybe it's in the eyes of a boss, a business partner, a friend, or potential mate. In that event, one cares about their appearance not for egotistical reasons, but rather as a skill set or tool for achieving their long-term goals. Mastery comes in the form of walking this line without falling into the depths of ego indulgence. I feel as though I've uncovered the big hairy elephant in the center of my mind's room. In response, I begin to form a habit or condition a Pavlovian response. Whenever I hear the bell of my mind going off, telling me I'm happy, I ask myself, what is the cause of this happiness? Is it a worldly cause like self-promotion or self-glorification in the eyes of others? A thrill that will create short-term boosts but will lower my baseline happiness? Or is it a more genuine place? These are questions I try to entertain when the bell goes off in my head. And now I'd like to pose the question, what are some other examples of when caring about what other people think about you might make sense? And, and that's, uh, that's open for discussion. 
Very good. And we will come back to that discussion after uh, my sample. Um, as we were just talking about caring what, what other people think, this is a good time to remind people to uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at roses underscore rhetoric and also join our, our check our website frequently uh, at uh, www.rosesandrhetoric.com where you will see uploads of uh, various things, including episodes of this podcast. Very good. Well, I enjoyed that and that will have uh, plenty to say about that. Um, definitely building off of some themes we've been bringing up in our recent podcast, Scott Adams and ego as a tool rather than as a destination. But my, my uh, story today is um, more of an exercise in a uh, stream of consciousness. And so I, uh, I wrote the following um, kind of in the middle of the night and I kind of just let my mind wander to see where it took me. And uh, where it took me was a little, a little place I like to call front and back. <clears throat> Front and back. What goes in to the perfect shower? Many things, and not the least of which is attention to detail. Too many people rush through the shower without giving a second thought to the order in which they wash their body. Perhaps it is the abundance of hot water, of soap, or the always clean towel that allows modern humans to take for granted a practice once associated with religious purification. We belong to a class of animals that has to bathe. If we do not, we begin to smell bad. And when we smell bad, we become self-conscious, nervous even, leading to more body odor. It is a perpetual cycle on display in the halls of every high school in the country as teenagers begin to accept that part of adjusting to their changing bodies is the need to accept the change in hygiene habits. But what if the odorous adult that strange fellow who never seems to notice that he, and if we are to be fair, it is almost always a he, smells terrible. What causes such a predicament? Here, the humble listener will have to indulge me. I propose that one reason such a man might exist is simply due to ignorance. What if they, rather he, were taught the proper course of action? To begin, we want to let the water run about a minute before entering the shower. Avoiding going to the bathroom before going to the shower as well. It is best to avoid bringing drips of urine or chunks of feces into a hot, humid environment. With the water running and the shower at a nice temperature, feel free to enter. A key idea in the shower is heat retention. We want to avoid opening the curtain too wide to keep as much heat inside the shower as possible. With enough practice, you should be able to slide into the shower by hardly moving the curtain at all. And with enough practice, you can also throw the perfect spiral. Once inside, you want to quickly rinse off your entire body, front and back. And I cannot stress enough how important it is to rid yourself of the fantasy of showering without getting your hair wet. This is not playtime, it's shower time. And in the shower, as in life, some things are simply out of our control. Order of operations is also important in a shower. So is self-esteem. In fact, half of the heat in a shower comes from self-esteem. It is important to cleanse yourself in a fashion that builds confidence, leaving you to exit the shower an improved version of who you were when you entered. I prefer step one to be my hair and my face. I use a brand name shampoo bottle that comes in a very big bottle. I use way too much and I don't care. And I prefer a bar soap because I am an idiot. I also use a face wash. 
but I just use whatever my wife happens to be using. A shower is like a box of chocolates. Eventually, everyone dies. After I've washed my hair and my face, I like to stand backwards in the shower to slick my hair back. In the real world, my hair is too thick to do this, but in the shower, I can be whoever I want to be. In the shower, I can connect with the God mind. I can perceive the ultimate end of humanity as the creation of a just and permanent universe. In the shower, everything becomes clear. In the shower, I am reborn. With my body nice and wet, I take a bar of soap and begin rubbing it all over myself. This is not a metaphor. I literally rub a bar of soap all over my body and then rub the residue around to clean myself. If the bar of soap were a dead animal, this would be disgusting, but it's a bar of soap, so it is completely natural. After the battered and bloody soap bar oozes all over my body, I play in its filth until I'm covered in a frothy remains of its corpse. The bar of soap put up a good fight, and smearing it all over myself is a time-honored primal display of respect. I also use a shower brush to reach my whole body, front and back. With my body covered in suds and my hair slicked back, I take a moment to look at my ball sack. I connect with the billions of men, some alive now, some already dead, who also looked at their ball sack in the shower. I take a moment to think about how we all got here and also to think about where we are all going. I take a moment to be thankful for the ride and the nice water pressure. I turn off the shower and allow myself to drip dry. Everyone has a good body when they get out of the shower. Take a moment to feel good about yourself. When you are ready, exit the shower and grab your towel. We dry off the way that we bathe, the way that we strive to do all things, front and back. Thank you. Bravo. <laughs> yeah. A lot of crossover with your story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I feel like it was the same story in different words. Yeah. Yeah. Just a different perspective. Yeah. Just a different angle on things. Yeah. Wow. That was, uh, what, what was, uh, some of the inspirations for, you know, for I was laying in. So when you and I came up with the idea of doing this, of sharing pre-written statements, I thought I have no idea what I'm going to write about. And I had just taken a shower and I was laying in bed and I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just do this maybe on Thursday before to, to give me some time to read it. And I was like, now I'm just going to do it right now. So I got out of bed, got out my computer and just began typing. And this is uh, what came out. So, you know, I don't I don't know what that says about me, but uh, I enjoyed it. It was a it was a fun, a fun read uh, and really pretty minimal revision between the version you're hearing now and the version that came out on uh, Wednesday night. Oh, that's great. I have a few follow-up questions on that. Good. So you mentioned that you did not want to use the bathroom before entering the shower. Yeah, this has been a controversial point. Uh, I, I've shared this with one other person before the episode, and they, they had a similar question. I, here's, mm-hmm. here's, here's my opinion. I think if you're going to go to the bathroom before you get in a shower, you have to be diligent with the wipe. You have to be diligent with the wipe. Um, if you trust yourself to be diligent with the wipe, then go ahead. You have my blessing. But if you I thought know, the shower was the wipe. Well, that you know, this is a point of contention. I would argue, absolutely not. And uh, again, I, I think that when you're in the shower, the less filth you bring into the shower, the better off you're going to be. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to interpretation on this. I'm open to other uh, trains of thought. I know over the years, you know, you, me, myself, and uh, our, our, our other friends have 
been debating perfect shower technique. I'm just hoping to start the conversation. You know, this, this won't be where it ends, but I hope this, maybe this is where, you know, we can just establish mm -hmm. a, a playing field and then see where the game takes us. Okay. So if you're not using the restroom, if you're not using the bathroom before the shower, does that imply that you're using the bathroom in the shower or using the shower as a bathroom in that case? I, I like about a one to two hour window between when I, when I use the bathroom and when I start to shower. So, and that goes on, on either side, because all of us have been in the situation, right? If you, you know, you get out of the shower, you're wet and you have to go to the bathroom. That's a terrible spot to be in. You know, it, mm. toilet paper is the is, wet, wet toilet seat. Yeah, it's so. terrible. It's, 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 look, there's no, there's no better way to transfer germs to your body than to put a, a, a wet butt cheek on something. I mean, that, that's just asking for trouble. So, you know, you want to avoid that as best you possibly can. And so, no, one, one, two hour window gives enough time for the steam in the shower to kind of clear out, to let the bathroom return to a nice, dry, sterile state, and then, you know, then go to the bathroom. Okay. And then you said that you, you physically rub the soap bar on your body I, and like, I, and like, I, a car, like a cartoon. And I, and I literally real? do this. I, 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 don't, I don't, if I'm alone in this, then I guess I, I, I don't know. But I literally take a bar of soap and put it in my hand, and I rub the bar of soap on my body. I, I, I literally do that. And so I don't know how common that is, but when I look at a bar of soap, this is again, this is my, my, my primal mind working here. When I look at a bar of soap, I think I'm gonna rub that thing all over myself. Now, maybe I'm alone in that. I really, again, I don't know. I'm not, uh, let me say it again. I'm not looking to end the conversation. I'm looking to start the conversation. Yeah, so no, no loofah, no nothing, just straight, just straight bar, bar, body. bar to body. With one exception, I do like I do. I, I do have a shower brush, and I cannot reach my back with the bar of soap. So in that case, I will do a little pre-application of the soap bar to the shower brush, but just for my back, just for my back. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you also said you did the the top-down approach, starting with your your hair. I and do. Way down. I do. I mean, I'm a big believer in the top-down approach. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. I think so too. I think you want your butthole to be the last thing that you touch in the shower. That would be ideal. Does that, so does that imply that you shower sitting down? Well, I, so I used to be a big bather, used to be a very big bather. Very, I very much believed in the bathtub, but um, our new apartment has kind of a tiny tub. And I just, I, I kind of use that as an excuse to transition into, into showers. But if I had the option, if I had the option, I would be a big bath guy. No doubt about that. Okay. And uh, what, just a more of a, to put this in some historical context. Sure, sure. You, you mentioned that showering started off as a religious thing. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that it began that way, but certainly in, in religious traditions, cleaning yourself has a very important spiritual place. You know, we have the cliche that cleanliness is next to godliness, you know, so maybe bathing didn't begin with it, but it quickly became associated that the the spiritual world was a was a clean you know place and that humans are, are are filthy and that we need to clean ourselves before partaking in religious rituals um i i find that to be kind of a almost a, a negative view i i i think i i don't view humans as being filthy but i i i understand you know kind of what they're getting at and the idea that cleaning yourself makes you presentable to a holy place uh but uh, you know, I, that's an interesting mindset to play with and to, to kind of think about the, the historicity of how that came to be. You know, what was the first time a caveman and a cave woman 
showered? You know, what was that experience like? And what was the reason behind it? I mean, imagine how bad did a caveman have to smell for them to go, whoa, we got to put it into this bullshit. I mean, <laughs> how bad is that? Because think about it. Before that, they had never bathed before. So who came in one day and was just like, wow, that guy reeks. You have to go put yourself in water to get some of that shit off of yourself because we're all animals and you still smell bad. I mean, that's got to be a hell of a person, right? So in, in a way, we owe this, this primal uh, stinky person a, a debt of gratitude because that person who created the necessity for the first shower, uh, we, owe them, we owe them so much. And so, you know, whoever that person was, you know, however, you know, a million years ago, you know, thank you for smelling so bad that your fellow humans had to nudge you into an entirely new ritual to smell better. Yeah, th- much appreciation goes out to Caveman X. Caveman X, yes, yes. Well, if that, if that does it with mine, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to spend more time on this. Like I said, this is very, you know, stream of consciousness is kind of, you know, I, I put a lot, of, uh, a lot of thought into this, but I, none of it I would take, you know, this is, isn't necessarily where I, where I will be in a, in a week or a month, you know, it's very much just, you know, in the moment writing this. But um, mm-hmm. I know I was, I was happy with how it came out and uh, glad, like I said, just to begin the conversation about, you know, proper hygiene, et cetera. Um, especially given, given COVID, everyone was talking about, you know, hand washing. Well, what about washing your butthole? That's also important. Oh yeah. And that's one part that I think your story was missing actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of the fine, finer details of that aspect of the show. I, I hope to revisit that maybe, uh, maybe not next week. That might be a little too quick, but you know, maybe a few down the road, I'll, if I have another blast of inspiration, um, I'd be happy to revisit the shower and go over a more step-by-step approach for what that might look like. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about doing episodes with, uh, with, with video. Maybe we do a video one about that. I don't know. I think sky is the limit when mm. it comes to cleaning yourself in the public airwaves. That's just my opinion. So, but yeah, so like I was saying, I think that this, you know, again, starts the conversation, doesn't need to end it, but uh, something that I definitely want to revisit in the future. But I think, I think that does it for mine. Let's change gears a little bit. Let's get back to your story. I think you had a lot of, uh, key elements here, a nice interweaving of what, what seemed to be three different authors. So you had Eckhart Tolle on the one hand, who was arguing for the power of now, a book that we both read, that we both enjoyed. You had a, a, a new author who, I've, who I have not heard of, uh, the, the Jesuit priest from India, arguing that we ought to focus on, on um, questions that are in some sense eternal, that not focusing on, on things that come from society, but that come from, from a deeper place. And then Scott Adams, kind of tying them together with the idea of ego as a tool. Could you just give a, a very quick summary again of those three authors to give it, to get us back on track? And then I have some follow-up as it pertains to, to daily habits and then taking it one step further and uh, trying to uncover some areas where this has been of use to you and, and maybe uh, recent events of your life that you've gone through this thought process. Sure. So Eckhart Tolle, is, his whole thing is the power of now being present to the moment, living life in the moment, not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, just kind of finding your body, finding your true self, not your ego self, and living life that way. And his, his, the whole argument behind that is, like I said, when there's no psychological time passing in the mind, there can be no conflict. You, you can't, you're not going to be angry. You're not going to be sad. You're going to be more of a a baseline peaceful being state. And like I said, that was super influential and super impactful on my life. But there, there was something missing from it that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Uh, 
until I started reading some of the DeMello's work. And like I said, he's from, he's from India and he's a, a Catholic Jesuit priest. I think that he actually, as part of some of these writings on some of this more spiritual aspects of life, there's a, there, he actually created a bunch of controversy within the Catholic Church. And I'm not sure if he got excommunicated, but he, uh, he was definitely pushing those limits. But one of the things he was talking about was comparing the differences between, between the, way, the way you feel in, in, with respect to different stimulations. Like, it's a different feeling of feeling good from when you, you know, beat someone in a game or win a bet. That's a totally different feeling than when you're, when you're, when you're sitting somewhere enjoying a sunset, watching nature. He called it nature with a capital N. And that made me start thinking and it made me come up with this example that if you lived on a planet or if you lived on a, a, you know, an abandoned island and there were no other people there, no other people on the planet, you know, you would never feel some of these feelings like embarrassment or worrying about appeasing others or any of those types of feelings. And it's like, wow, like how much of my day do I spend just walking around thinking about what other people care? Like how much of that feeling goes, flies under the radar and that I don't even realize. The hard part was relating this all to Scott Adams because as you know, Scott Adams is not a spiritual uh, person. Right. He, he's a... And I think that shows in some of his periscopes and podcasts. He does go on uh, some pretty big swearing rants and does get pissed off a lot. But I think he's totally right in the sense that you can't read other people's minds. Um, assuming that you can read people's minds is a big form of loser think. And he points it out countless times on Twitter. As people tweet at each other, they're saying, oh, you know, this person thinks this or this politician thinks that. They don't right. care about these people. They just want this, this, and this to happen. And it's just... it it's one of the biggest fallacies that we have as humans is thinking that we know what other people think. And it's just, it's not true. In fact, if you want to know what someone isn't thinking, it's probably safe to try and do a mind reading on them. Cause that's <laughs> probably not what they're thinking. So I saw that these three stories kind of weave together in my mind. And that's what I was hoping to capture in this. I, yeah, I mean, it was, so one of the things, and I, I think your story did uh, a great job of this is I think, and we, we talked about this in previous episodes, but it's, it's challenging, but probably most important when anybody reads a new book is to connect it to another idea that you, that you have confidence in or that you believe to be true, that you should always be trying to build, you know, things into, uh, mm -hmm. into knowledge you already have rather than just having it exist in little isolated islands that don't really communicate with each other. And so connecting the mind reading to the idea of not caring what people think is such an important idea, because even if you should care what someone else thinks, you, you, you really cannot know what they think unless you just ask them. And so usually when we're embarrassed, it's because we think we know what somebody else is thinking. So the, 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 the problem with caring about what someone else thinks is troubled mm -hmm. by two different things. One is the fact that you probably don't even know what they think. And then the second would be on a deeper level, does it even matter? But it's almost like it's a, it's, it's the loser thing prevents 
you get in that far because it's already saying, look, you don't even know what they're thinking. So what are you even embarrassed about? Like you're embarrassed by an illusion that you know what they think about you. And I, I like, and this is an example that I've heard a lot. Um, and I've, I've, I've heard it many places, but the idea that if you, the next time you're embarrassed, ask yourself how much you care when you see someone else do something embarrassing. It, not that much because you probably mm -hmm. don't, you know? And so the other person is the exact same way. They probably don't really care. Whatever you're embarrassed about, you know, if your hair is out of place, you have something in your teeth, think about how much you would care if that happened to someone that you saw. Probably not that much. Extend the other person yeah. kind of the, the same thinking. One idea that I wanted to, to bring to the idea that you were just talking about and the idea of, of finding things that are important in life is I, I think that ties in really well with a couple of things that I've been reading this week. And the first is uh, another book from Nassim Taleb, this one called Fooled by Randomness, which is the idea that people mistake what is actually just noise in the system for being meaningful information. And that oftentimes what, what we think is meaningful information is just noise. And one of the, as, as you were reading your story about, uh, about nature and about finding things that are really important, I think one of the, uh, another benefit of that is that it takes away some of the, the sporadic nature of pop culture. And if you focus on values that really have not changed for, you know, a thousand years, you don't have to worry about those verbs going out of fashion because first off, they're important in their own right. But second of all, they've been around for a long time. So you can count on them being around a little bit longer. It, it takes away some of the variability. Uh, honesty. I think honesty is, uh, mm -hmm. is such an, I would say honesty is today the most important virtue to have because of how easy it is to spread and share information. And whether that's social media or, you know, anything on the internet, because it is so easy to spread information, it is that much more important to make sure that what we're spreading is, is, is truthful and honest to the best of our ability. Yeah. And, and again, looking at honesty, like what would be the, the driver for not being honest, for being dishonest? It would be, yes. it would be the fear of what other people would think of hearing the truth. Yeah, absolutely. It, you, you're making a huge mental assumption there that, as I've discussed, is likely going to be wrong. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like that. I really like the idea of focusing. And I, one of the things I like, too, is this idea. I, again, it's a cliche, but this time it's a cliche because I think it's true is the idea of focusing on which, on, on which part makes you feel better. Is it the mountain or is it the, is it the climb? Is it the work or is it the result? I mean, most people are happier when they're involved in something than when that thing is, is accomplished. And I have uh, a list of some things I read through every morning. They're basically like little mental uh, primers for having productive days. And one of, the, one of those statements is the idea that reflect on, on how you feel when you're involved in meaningful work, you know, that, yeah. that is the motivation and in the stride that should get you through the day, you know, not getting something finished, not, you know, turning in an assignment, but being, being driven by enjoying the process and by enjoying the growth of the experience. Yeah. And the, the beautiful part is that you're able to define what is meaningful to you. Like that's up to you to decide yeah. and it's unique to each person. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that. I, 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 and the, something I wanted to come back to is this idea of you touched on it a little bit with the idea of the ego. And I, you know, one of the ideas that Scott Adams has in Loser Think is the idea of converting ego from almost from 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 being a noun to being a verb. The idea that it, rather than your ego defining you, it's something that you kind of turn up and turn down depending on the situation. Is that 
is that something that, that you've incorporated into your day-to-day life as you try to incorporate these other ideas about, you know, living in the moment and caring about deeper virtues? I mean, you, all of us still have these ego drives. Have you played with trying to get a dial on that to use it to your advantage and turn it down when you don't need it? Yeah, I remember reading about it in, in Loser Think. I remember reading about how you can use the ego for your advantage in this book, but I don't remember the specifics. Can you remind me when, when it would make sense to do that? Sure. So a, a great time to turn down the ego is when you're asking somebody for advice. Um, when, you, when you're asking somebody for advice, you want to be receptive to what they are saying, but it's very natural to be defensive. Um, nobody likes being edited. Nobody likes you know, getting negative feedback, but that's an important part of growth. And so if we can learn to accept negative feedback well and to adapt it well, then we will benefit from it. And he gives an example of another cartoonist in Loser Think who reached out to Scott for advice on becoming a cartoonist. And Scott gave him all this feedback and the person turned down their ego, took the advice, incorporated it into their comic, and now they're hugely successful. You know, mm-hmm. a time where you want to turn up the ego is when you need a little bit of bravado. You know, if you're making a sale, if you're giving a presentation, if you're, you know, speaking to, you know, it just in general in, in public, it can make sense to put on a little bit of a, a little bit of an ego, a little bit of confidence. Again, there, there, there's always a fine line, right, between being confident, being cocky, being annoying. But for people that are, that, that are truly inspiring, that, that have that confidence behind them, probably there's a little bit of showmanship going into that, which we as the audience know and accept, but we allow it because it makes that presentation more enjoyable. But that would be a good time to turn the ego up a little bit, give your presentation a little more, uh, a little more power, a little more flavor, and to make it more enjoyable for the audience. Yeah, a little more, a little more pizzazz. Yeah, exactly. But, but yeah, that's, that's something I tried to capture, was talking about how, how you can use you can use the ego as an aid for your persuasion to achieve some of those things yeah. that you care about more deeply. But er- earlier you were talking about, uh, you know, as you experience happiness and thrills in life, looking at them critically and seeing what feels better. But I, I would make the argument that some things, some of these more worldly um, feelings actually you know, the ones that aren't really natural and are caused by other people will actually feel better than some of the good ones. Yeah, true. But the problem is that they affect the baseline. Yeah. Like think back to like a time where you got a promotion right. or where you were in charge of people and you were calling shots or you won a bet or you, you know, some randomness put you in a position that made you superior to others. And those are some of the, some of the best feelings out there. They're just right. some of the best right. highs that a human can have. True, but but they are short-lived, right? In other words, it, it's not permanent. You, you, you really can't control whether or not you get a promotion. And so maybe it ha- like, in other words, it's almost like it makes you, it exposes you to, to, to future downfall. You know, this is an idea that comes up in like stoic writing that when you have something, now you're in danger of losing it. So if you obtain something and then you become attached to it, you feel good in that moment, mm-hmm. but then you're vulnerable to, to, to losing that thing. And so I, I definitely agree with you. It's the, the allure, look, if, if, if these feelings weren't so powerful, people wouldn't chase after them. I mean, the, the reason, and this gets back to what the, the, the priest was saying, that these emotions drive us to be competitive and to strive for things that have some kind of commercial uh, backing behind them. It is good for a company, for employees to want to be promoted because then they work harder to get promoted, right? So, I mean, this, mm-hmm. is, this is these ideas going into the, into the public that make us better suited for the, the ends of whoever happens to be promoting these ideas. 
Um, yeah, yeah, that's what Demello said. He said it makes us controllable yes. to to care about these types of things and these types of highs. And I, I don't have. I think that that's a very good point. And I, I think it, it always makes sense to be suspicious of motivations, especially within ourselves. And striving yeah. for a a simple life is. I think the the surest way to have long term sustained happiness, you know, not changing, not chasing the moment, not chasing a fad, but getting to something deeper that has that that has had meaning for many people throughout their entire lives. You know, this is what Demel was saying. You know, family, friends, you know, those are things that I can count on because I, as a human, I I do have needs, but I probably don't need a promotion the same way that I need a family and friends, Like those are probably different needs, even though in the moment the promotion may feel better longer term, like kind of what you're talking about, what your baseline happiness uh, is what we should focus on. Not, not the variability of the day to day. And that creates an interesting space because traditional Eastern philosophy is all, you know, operating under the, the notion that in order to be happy, you just have to get rid of all your wants. And if you don't want anything, then you'll by definition be happy or at least peaceful. But the problem with that is that uh, that's not a very, very active life. Right. Like there's nothing, there's nothing to do. Like if you're just sitting in a cave meditating at that point, your whole right. life. So w- where I'm interested in the, the part, the, the niche that fascinates me is bridging that gap, you know, bridging the gap between entrepreneurship and, you know, Eastern philosophy and some people are starting to are do a good job at that. Like Naval Ravikant, for example, he's a he's a Silicon Valley angel investor, started a bunch of companies and also big time student of philosophy. And one of the people that he reads a lot of is Osho, uh, also known as. Uh, what, what's his name? Oh, yeah. From. Uh... From Wild right. Wild yes, Country. Yes, yes. Bhagavan yep, yep. or whatever yep. his name was. But he he actually started off as as this different identity, and then he turned into Osho because he effectively got canceled <laughs> because he started pursuing some of these uh, you know entrepreneur goals. Right. Like he started his own colony in you know Eastern Oregon. He had Rolls Royces. He had you know every every worldly pleasure that he could want. But at the same time, he was able to balance that with his inner peace and his inner spirituality. And I, I think combining the two is going to be what motivates the future entrepreneur. I mean, I, I think people are not sustained by just being motivated by money. I think people continuously look for, for deeper meanings in life, but at the same time, it's a rare person who truly is going to be satisfied by just sitting in a cave and meditating. It's kind of what, kind of like what you were saying like that. I, I enjoy pursuing things. I enjoy discovery. I enjoy creation. And I, I, I guess it, it is, it is hard to balance those desires at the same time, realizing that if you put your happiness in the wrong space, then you're setting yourself up for some kind of long-term failure. I, what I really like about what you're saying is that it ties in so well with what I'm reading right now by Taleb, which is this idea of, of not being fooled by randomness and that the mm-hmm. reason somebody may be successful has nothing to do with what they were doing. That was completely, that was just totally irrelevant 
to their success, but they will think that, that is why they are successful. And probably the, the prime example of this is a stock trader, somebody who for five years in a row is just picking winner after winner after winner. And then all of a sudden it comes to the next day and they lose everything. But they will think, wow, for five years, I was just on the money. I was taking everything out. No, for five years, you're, you're being fooled by randomness. You thought that you knew what you were doing, but you didn't. And so if we, if we put too much uh, pride in, in things that, that, that are fleeting, and if we confuse ourselves into thinking that we have a skill or an expertise, and that even though we're in the pursuit of something, we may be setting ourselves up for a future down the road where we end up becoming depressed and realizing that we didn't really have that skill that we thought we had. And so, but one of the things I've been thinking about this week is, you know, what, what can I dedicate myself to pursuing that doesn't set me up for either being fooled by randomness or by being, you know, uh, affected by things that are truly out of my control. And as, as best I can tell, the things I can do are all come down to living a good day one day at a time. It comes down to being an honest person. It comes down to mm-hmm. treating my body well. It comes down to treating my friends and family well. I can do that every single day, or I, actually, I can strive to do that every single day. And yeah, got to keep showering every single day. And, and that can be enough for me to, to, to slowly build a good life. And then whatever else comes my way, whether it's success or failure, um, you know, I, I don't have to let that affect me, you know, beyond a, a learning opportunity. But maybe the lesson to learn is that was out of my control and I, I can't get anything from that. I, you know, that, that, that's always possible as well. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, of things you can't control this week, uh, I forget, it was either October 27th or October 28th, maybe on Scott Adams Periscope. He was talking about how for one to become successful, you need some luck. Oh, yeah. You can't it. It's not a safe assumption to assume that you can become successful off skill alone. So he advocates ways of, you know, building your talent stack, building your skill set and building your your systems in ways that puts you out, puts you out there in places where you're more likely to, to catch a hook, right. you know, where you're more likely to get noticed, to get found in a place where luck is more likely to happen. And that, that's, that was an interesting concept that I've been thinking about a lot since then. Like, cause luck, such an abstract, uncontrollable thing. How can you find a way to tame that concept and use it to, towards your advantage or towards uh, achievement of your goals? Absolutely. And I would say that is such a key part to kind of the, uh, the philosophy of Nassim Taleb is, you know, we can't know the future. We can't predict the future. How can we build systems that benefit from the unknown? How can we build systems that are resilient to the unknown? And how do we avoid systems that are fragile to the unknown? I, what I really like about the idea of building a talent stack is that it ties in with, and I, I forget the scientist who said this, but you know, the idea that, you know, fortune favors a prepared mind, that we, we will never know when opportunity strikes. But if we are building skills and building ourselves, when that comes our way, we can better take advantage of it. And so, and even if luck never comes, the, just the, the process of having a life where you're always improving yourself will also make you happy. So even if, if you be, if you really dedicate yourself to becoming a good writer and you spend, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, I, I think you can en- enjoy that process. And I mean, hopefully you have success from that as well, but even if you don't, the worst you come out of the other side is a really good writer, 
versus somebody who just sits around and, and waits for the future to come to them. Mm. After 30 years, all they will have achieved is waiting on something without improving themselves and without having that experience of growing into a better version of themselves. So you, we can always control our own improvement. We may, we maybe we can't control the material gain from that, but we can always control improving ourselves. Yeah, that reminds me of Charles Bukowski, the 20th century writer. The story goes that he wrote every day for 30-some years, 40 years, and he lived in complete anonymity his whole life. Like, no one knew who he was, but he was still creating these great pieces of, of literature that were floating out in the world. And, you know, maybe a magazine would pick him up every now and then or small book deals, but that was a different time. Like, that was before the internet. And he wasn't, so he had all the tools of being a great writer and writing great stories and great books, but he, the skill or the place that he lacked was in getting those pieces of work out there in a place where they can be picked up in a place where luck can happen and he could become successful from that. I mean, it eventually happened because he was just such a good writer, but for him, unfortunately, it took 30, 40 years. Which is, I think, a good lesson to learn, right? That when anybody becomes successful, we should always remember to be humble because what separates us from somebody who isn't successful maybe has nothing to do with skill and everything to do with luck. I mean, there's a ton of people who work really hard in this world that just never get a break. And that's, that's just, you know, that's just the odds of life, I guess. But that's why I think humbleness, which is funny because there's no room for being humble on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram, right? Like it's all about showing, you know, this facade of a life that you pretend to have. But really, yeah, all of us should be humbled by our success because what it, it's all about, uh, I, let me not say all about, it is, it, it is, it is to some extent about luck. And um, I like this idea that Nassim Taleb has this idea of uh, fooled by randomness, the book I'm reading now. This idea that when we think about the past and when we're when we observe at a present moment, rather than valuing the present moment for the individual instance, we should think about all the ways that the past could have gone up until that point and view it as kind of a weighted average. So like the example he gives is if you offer somebody ten million dollars to play Russian roulette and they win, you don't reward them because like my God, like the stakes were so high, like you got lucky <laughs> that you won a ten million dollars, but yeah. you shouldn't ever you shouldn't have played it. So even if you won you don't get rewarded for playing Russian roulette. Why? Because the, 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 sum, the summation of all the events that could have happened were so far against you that even though you happen to win, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. And so I, I like that idea. But what if, what if you were, to play on that example, what if you were to play Russian roulette with a gun that maybe held a thousand bullets in the chamber? You know what I mean? So that there was one a one in a thousand. thousand oh, right. I was thinking about this too. Like, what odds like, does it become? There's got to be a no cutoff doubt, No doubt. For me, it wouldn't be one in six, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It, I was thinking about that too. Like maybe at some point it doesn't come to your advantage, but I, I still like that idea of when somebody achieves it, when, when you're at some event in your life, don't just think about that event to determine if it was a, a good decision or a bad decision. Sometimes we make bad choices that work out. That isn't in defense of a bad, of a bad decision. That is uh, despite of making a bad decision. And, so, and, and again, I, I like how this ties in with what you're talking about. Uh, now, I think that that idea ties in very well with uh, chasing things that are in the moment that maybe it works out for you, you know, a couple of times, but eventually uh, things will catch up to you. And if you put your values in the wrong things, eventually you will pay a price for that. 
Now, Nassim in his books, does he does he ever give any financial investing advice? Um, specifically, he or is does he intend this to be applied more to your life in general? Yeah, it, these concepts so and principles. The book that I'm reading now, Fooled by Randomness, definitely has conversations about things in the market. Nothing in it that is specific enough to be put into practice without having know some background of how finance works um i I imagine people that were steep in that world could probably put some of these things into practice um but for me kind of as as a layman to anything financial where i try to use his ideas is in how i approach things in my own life um with anti-fragile it was about trying to really look at look at situations that i'm involved in that that could be fragile to my long-term happiness and then look for things that are resilient and anti-fragile etc with this book, Fooled by Randomness, the, the thing that I'm trying to take away now is this idea of whatever history I happen to be living in, whatever moment I happen to be living in, it's just one out of many other possible ones. And then I should really be careful to not confuse where I happen to be with where I was more likely to be. And that even though I'm at a particular place right now, if I made bad choices that got me here, then I just got really lucky and I shouldn't count on that luck continuing so i should always be looking at things i'm doing yeah. in life to generate the best odds of success you shouldn't get too excited about things that happen it, out exactly in in at some level most things that happen to us are out of our control i mean my my health you know the fact that i'm living in america i mean all these things that i'm extremely grateful for but of course i had no control in and so this if, if it two two virtues that are so important these days and i myself definitely need to work on is one humbleness and and two always uh always striving for honesty you know always making sure that what i'm saying is truthful Mm -hmm. and that at the same time with humbleness always making sure that wherever i happen to be is i'm I'm not confusing that with fate that it was i was destined for it that no it happened to be this way i should always be cautious of what can come next and grateful for whatever luck I, i do happen to receive yeah, and gratitude is yeah. so important. So one one trend that I've noticed or one pattern I'm starting to realize, and I don't know, maybe you can shed some insight as to what's going on here, but it seems as though a lot of these great philosophical minds, uh, they're all of Middle Eastern descent. Like look at Anthony DeMello, look at Naval Ravikant, the, you know, the, the philosoph- philosopher entrepreneur. Nassim Tlaib, he's, I think, from yeah, Lebanon, right, he's Lebanese. Right, yeah. he, he's from there, Osho, uh, Chris the Murdy, like just all these different great philosophical minds that kind of think in the same way, all come from the same part of the country. Like, do you think there's something there or do you think that's just randomness? Ah, you know, great question. I will, I will default to saying it probably is randomness just because I don't want to abandon my Nassim Tlaib teachings. But I, I will say this. One benefit that part of the world has is that it, that there are so many cultures in that part of the world that maybe it's the, the interplay that all these different philosophies have. So you have Buddhism, you have Islam, you have Christianity, you have Judaism. Maybe when you put all these ideas together, you know, like the, the, the best ideas float to the surface or something, you know, maybe something like that's happening in that part of the world. Uh, so you have all these, you know, you know, very, uh, uh, established and in, 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 in long religious traditions, maybe the mixing of them together causes their, the, the best ideas, this idea of, of humbleness and of living in the moment 
and then of taking probability into account for success in your life. You know, maybe these are all just coming out of uh, coming out of that concoction of uh, different ideas and different philosophies. Because it's not something you see in the Western world, you know, the, the concept of living in the moment of reducing spiritual wants or worldly wants. I mean, the Bible does indirectly touch on it. Like you can skim through the Bible and find certain quotes that you could kind of interpret yeah. to be that way. Yeah. But it's not as explicit as like, you know, the Buddha says this, yeah. the Buddha says that. Like, it, it's very different and it almost feels like it's inherent to that region or to that. Yeah, culture. I mean, probably the, 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 the most similar example would be something like, you know, the, you know, you have an easier time going through the eye of a needle than, there, than a rich man getting into heaven. You know, that kind of plays on that idea a little bit, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then I was going to say with, with yeah, philosophy. Yeah. DeMello quotes yeah. that. He starts one of yeah. his chapters off yeah. of that, actually. So it's funny The that. other one I'll say, too, is, is, is stoicism. I think very much is tied into that idea of, of limiting your concerns to what you really control. You know, kind of the punchline of stoicism is that it turns out you don't really control that much at all, right? So you begin with this idea of like, okay, I'm only going to focus on what I control, but then you you follow that thought process, and it's like, damn, really, there's not much left. <laughs> so, so that is, I, I think that that ties into it a little bit as well. Yeah, definitely. Um. Well, do you have any uh, closing I, thoughts? I. So mine, obviously, you know, for, for people who are listening, obviously front and back was, you know, largely a, a joke piece that I wrote. Um, I enjoyed writing it. It was fun. It was funny. But Jim, I took well, that very well, seriously. I'm, I'm going to rethink my entire we will, routine. We will come that. back to that. Remember, it's all about self-esteem in the shower. But I, I really enjoyed uh, Joe's article today. I thought there were so many good ideas in there that uh, – and it – and I was saying this last time too. The reason I know that what Joe shared was really good is because it, it applied to a book that I was reading that Joe probably had maybe never even heard of before. I mean, but those ideas are so powerful mm -hmm. that they carry through all these different avenues. And so, you know, Joe was able to connect this uh, idea from a Jesuit priest and from, uh, from Scott Adams and from uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle to a book that I was reading about probability. I mean, so obviously some, some huge ideas there. And so we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode today. Uh, join us next week. Uh, we might continue this format again. Who knows, maybe over the week, Joe and I will come up with uh, something even uh, more off the wall. But we hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you do follow us on Twitter, at uh, roses underscore rhetoric. And always uh, check out our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. We'll be posting these stories there uh, on that website and we'll also be posting this podcast as well along with maybe some other goodies throughout the week um, so thank you for joining us signing off for roses rhetoric i'm jimmy hackett from Rosa stanford saying ciao <laughs>